This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well and celebrated with creative people who have so much to offer. Today, my guest is Dr. David H. Ross Marin, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, a program director at McLean Hospital, and founder of the Center for Anxiety, which helps over a thousand patients every year in various parts of the country. Our guest is an international expert on spirituality and mental health, and he's written an amazing new book that I wanted to share with you called Thriving with Anxiety. Nine tools to make your anxiety work for you. You heard right. So let's jump right in and meet Dr. David H. Ross Marin and welcome him to join us now on Mike. Anxiety, we all have it. In a sense, we all need it. Why don't we talk about the definition of anxiety, the clinical definition, and, and why it is so important to us, doctor? Yeah, absolutely. Anxiety is definitely something we all have. And the reason why is because we all have a fear system. Fear is a healthy uh, emotion that we all uh, experience and it's intended to keep us safe. If there's a threat, some sort of physical threat to our safety, to our security, we'll have a fight or flight or freeze uh, response, uh, which is triggered by adrenaline and also some uh, neural processes. Um, and that's all adaptive and healthy. Anxiety is the same thing, but it's a misfire. So it's not absolutely necessary. But in, in that regard, it's sort of like, uh, you know, your alarm system works. So if you have an alarm that works, you're going to have false alarms. And, and that's why we all have anxiety from time to time. The people who think they're anxious all the time forget that that's part of who you are. It's just the switch is not being jiggled the right way, perhaps. Yeah, it's like an overactive uh, smoke uh, alarm in your, in your kitchen, which is a lot better off than having an alarm that doesn't work if you need it. Absolutely. So we're talking about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system in the nervous sure. system. Why don't you just define those, and then we'll get into some of the principles and the nine tools that we'll talk about some of them anyway to make anxiety work for us. Yeah, all these four-syllable medical words get people kind of anxious. So, uh, you know, there's <laughs> sympathetic and parasympathetic. It's six syllables. You know, these are these are anxiety-provoking words. So to put them in, in basically really in layman's terms, we have an on switch, and then we have not just an off switch. It's actually a process that slows the on switch. Mm -hmm. So um, a great analogy is like a car. Let's say your, your, your car, you need to get up to 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour on the highway. So you're going to hit the gas, and then your engine is going to rev up. That's the sympathetic nervous system, and that's what your anxiety does. That's what fear does. It revs you up. It increases your metabolic rate. It increases your uh, adrenaline. It increases your blood flow. It increases your, your speed of responsing, your muscle tension. All of those processes go faster, hotter, quicker, more keen to details in an amazing way. The parasympathetic system basically stops your body from overheating, and that is also triggered the minute that you start hitting that gas. There's another system in your car called coolant, which makes sure that it doesn't, it doesn't overheat. And our bodies have the exact same kind of system. It's obviously more complex than a car um, called the parasympathetic system, 
which basically slows it and makes sure that anxiety will not kill you. I will tell you, I've never lost a patient to anxiety. I never will lose a patient to anxiety. And that's because we have this cooling system that makes sure that your body doesn't over overheat, so to speak. Well, that's the thing that a lot of people suggest when they have a panic attack. Oh my God, I'm dying and this is the end and I can't control it and it's out of my reach. What do I do? The panic sets in. And what you're explaining to us is that there is a a natural system in the body that is designed to protect us from that. And it's perhaps learning how to move in and use that system effectively that you're talking about. That's that's definitely the case. Um, The best thing you can do to, to move into that system is simply to let it happen without fighting your anxiety. The problem happened. The problem is when people's engines start to rev up and then they're trying to get it to force it to tamp down. Invariably, when you do that, you're going to hit the gas. You're actually going to dump more adrenaline into your system. So the last thing you want to do when you're having an anxiety attack or a panic attack, as you mentioned, is to fight it. Because the more you fight it, the more anxiety is going to perpetuate and get worse. If you just let go and lean into it and allow it to occur, then your parasympathetic nervous system will come into gear as fast as it possibly can. You realize this is the plot of uh, several 1960s Star Trek episodes <laughs> when the, the creature, the alien that was sucking the energy, if you just let it suck the energy and then alternately don't fire your phasers at full blast, let it come and just kind of let it eat itself out. I know it's a weird analogy, but that's what I was thinking about when I was reading through the book. We're talking about people who are searching for ways to quell the symptoms of high anxiety, another movie reference. Let's talk a little bit about what people, in your estimation, are doing that is not helping them. Yeah. um, The first thing that we're doing that I think is perpetuating, exacerbating, creating in many ways the anxiety epidemic, and we do have an anxiety epidemic today, it has become completely out of control, is that we perceive anxiety as a dangerous, bad thing. In reality, have you ever met someone who hasn't been anxious? No. (laughs) No, me neither. You know, myself included. You know, I definitely have a reasonable amount of anxiety, as all humans do. In fact, those people who don't have anxiety uh, are probably a lot worse off than people who do have a reasonable amount. And, And that's not the way it's framed by the medical establishment, by educational systems, by by employers. Our culture is against anxiety. We are, we're all about anti-anxiety pills, anti-anxiety approaches, anti-anxiety bombs, medications, meditations, books. You know, I did not call my book Get Rid of Your Anxiety. And if you're looking for a strategy to get rid of your anxiety, don't buy my book. The whole point is to learn to accept it and to learn to deal with it, to change our relationship. This is a normal human emotion and we need to change how we how we interact with it. Mm-hmm. That's really at the core of, of why we have an anxiety epidemic and what we need to do going forward. When the book crossed my desk and it said thriving with anxiety, I did a double take because every other mention of anxiety is it's bad, tamp it down, do something to relieve it, relieve the symptoms and push it out of the out of the way. So you take another approach. Now you've got a center for anxiety in New York. Before we talk about how that came about, you talk a little bit about the name, the center for anxiety. It's not the center to relieve anxiety. Let's yeah. Talk about, let's talk about the origin story there. Sure, sure. So when I started Center for, firstly, I mean, the real reason why we started Center for Anxiety with the name is because I managed to get the URL, centerforanxiety.org. Sometimes that's a simple answer, yes. It, it is, if you really want to be practical about it. But the truth is, there is a double or even more, uh, certainly a double entendre to it. We do not help our patients to overcome their anxiety. In fact, we help them to live the best life that they can while experiencing anxiety. And when they take that approach, 
anxiety becomes a tool to have increased levels of resilience, better levels of connection with others, and even spiritual connection for those who are seeking. Um, it, this is not a disease. Anxiety is not a problem unless we turn it into something, into a, into a problem. And by contrast, in my pro in my program in my 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 treatment centers, which by the way are not only in New York, we also have offices in Boston and Cambridge, and Princeton, New Jersey. Um, we are treating over a thousand patients a year with uh, a well-known approach called exposure therapy and cognitive behavior therapy, and and a lot of the core of those treatments is helping people to make peace with their anxiety and actually to use it as a catalyst for growth. What would be an example of breakthrough in a, in a session or in a several sessions at the center? I mean, I, I can I can think of so many. <laughs> I know they're all in the book, I know, but I, maybe you can just pick a couple. And we have tons. You know, probably the most pronounced uh, change that we see in a short amount of time is with specific phobias. Do you know what a specific phobia is? What, just fear of spiders, fear of... Yeah, specific situations like spiders, could be other animals as well, dogs, right. cats, you know. Uh, elevators. Mice, uh, <laughs> elevators is a situational one, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Elevators are heights in general. Um, what's another one? Uh, some people have uh, hypochondriasis and fear of medical issues and mm -hmm. things like that. That can come up. Um, so these kinds of specific, discrete anxiety where typically the rest of people's lives, when they have these, they're actually functioning extremely well. They, you know, often uh, high functioning, going to work, uh, education, whatever it is that they're doing, um, uh, you know, but they have this Achilles heel, so to speak, or perceived Achilles heel. What's what's fascinating, what we do is called exposure therapy, where we help the, the patient or the individual to face their fear head on. So yes, we have a guy who can bring in spiders into our office and the same thing with snakes. And, uh, you know, in New York City, there's plenty of heights and plenty of elevators to be able to go on. We've done short haul and long haul flights with our patients to different areas around the country, even internationally. I've, I've traveled internationally with some of my um, my, my clients uh, by, by air when they were um, struggling with their anxiety around flying. And what's dramatic is that within often only a couple of hours of facing these fears, the people can really transform and say, wow, I experienced the anxiety. It didn't kill me. I didn't react as strongly as I was going to. My parasympathetic nervous system, my cooling system came in and it actually worked. And they become typically more resilient to face other life stressors as well, having nothing to do with that specific phobia. They just become more emotionally resilient because they just worked out at the gym. They just worked out at the emotional gym for, for however many sessions mm. or however many days um, by really pushing beyond their perceived limits. It's an amazing thing to see. Let's talk a little bit about trauma that everyone has. Uh, you, you know, it sure. could be losing a job. It could be losing a loved one. In my case, and I've talked about this and written it in my own little autobiography, uh, I was the victim of a violent crime. I was not physically hurt, but boy, was I shaken to the core. Sure. I had to do some uh, hard therapy to work through that trauma because it cascaded into some depression and anxiety after that. How does the Center for Anxiety and the Thriving with Anxiety process work with those who are dealing with, say, childhood trauma? Yeah, trauma is not easy. You know, trauma is not the same as a specific phobia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I, if I were to tell you that that would be a single session or a single afternoon or even right. four or five sessions, I would, I, would, I would be lying to you. To learn to, to thrive or to even to learn to cope with trauma can take um, months, you mm -hmm. know, months if not years to learn to do, depending on the severity, depending on the chron chronic nature of it depending on the type of trauma that it was. However, often people who have been through traumatic experiences 
are more emotionally in tune with the needs of others. They are often wonderful friends and wonderful confidants, people who really understand when people or others are going through mm. a difficult time. They have a lot more capacity for compassion. And I've seen this as well, where there's a greater resilience when, you know, this happened during the pandemic, um, where the, you know, we had this tiny little virus, a couple nanometers in length, which really disrupted and appended life for so many. And there were many people who struggled, of course, but there were also many people who did well. And a common thread that I saw in my practice and otherwise was people who had been through traumatic experiences in the past and had worked through it like you had built up the resilience and the capacity and the inner strength to be able to handle the COVID crisis with greater equanimity, greater solace, greater uh, peace of mind than people who had never been through traumatic experiences in the past. I'm living proof of that because I, I got through it. I don't want to say fine without feeling it, but I got through it and helped other people through it. And I love what you said about caring for others. The I call it the empathy gene sort of yep. turns on. It's one of the great boons of having anxiety or depression or whatever. When you come out of it, you feel willing and, and look forward to helping other people, to being with other people, social interaction. Let's talk about the spirituality aspect of it. I think that's at the core of what so many people are searching for. And, you know, they're praying and angry at God at the same time. But, yes. But, right, because why am I suffering? Why am I still feeling this way? How does the, the work you're doing and what you've investigated and worked on interact with the spiritual calling? If you sure. Will? You know, I will say this. Within spiritual traditions and across different religious denominations or even, you know, spiritual traditions that don't have religious denominations, there is a, a common thread and a common idea that human beings are not meant to be happy all the time at 100%. That is just not a realistic expectation. There, we are, we need to be humble. We need to accept that there are limits to our control. There's limits to our knowledge. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to struggle. And different faith systems have different ways of dealing with this. But this is a common spiritual calling, I would say, which is really at odds with the modern medical system dealing with anxiety, depression, and other mood states, which are really, from a spiritual perspective, 100% normal, even healthy. It's actually good to struggle because it shows mm. that a person is pushing beyond their limits, that they are actually striving for something greater that they are trying to achieve something that matters, that they're in a relationship that actually has substance to it, as opposed to like, I don't care about anything, you know? Uh, je ne sais quoi is not mm. necessarily an adaptive, healthy spiritual experience by any definition that I have seen. So along those lines, you know, I do think we need to, or should think about very strongly uh, injecting aspects of spirituality into our approach with anxiety. And my approach is very much um, shaped by my own spiritual system and also that which I've learned from others. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I just recently had a guest, Dr. Anna Yusim, who wrote a book called Fulfilled. You may be familiar with it. It's brand new. Sure. And it's uh, the, the focus is on the science of spirituality. And it's not very methodical and practical and numbered one okay. through ten. It's very warm and engaging, but it does open up that that kind of thing. I do want to have you share with us just a few of the tools, because, I mean, you suggest nine tools. They're laid yep. out beautifully in the book, chapter by chapter and section by section. 
But for those out there who are listening and curious and will want to buy the book and follow up, what would be an example, one or two examples of the tools? You mentioned how you subject people to what they fear the most, the spider, for instance. But let's talk about other tools that we can all use. Utilize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of uh, preambles before we get to the tools. Number one is that the tools are not intended to get rid of your anxiety. Mm-hmm. They're intended to use your anxiety in a positive way. And the first step, which is really a theme that runs throughout the entire book, and really my whole approach to anxiety and that which we use in our program, is to accept our anxiety and not to fight it. And if people use the tools to get rid of their anxiety, well, it usually doesn't work out well. Mm-hmm. That usually magnifies and increases the anxiety. So the way in which you use the tool, you know, you might have a great hammer or a great screwdriver, but if you use it as a pliers, it, you're going to be misusing it. So that's my my first preamble. My second preamble is that I put nine tools in the book. Three of them are relationship with ourselves. Three of them relate to our relationships with others, and three of them relate to our spiritual connection. And um, it's really a smattering of different ideas that people can use. I wouldn't prescribe any of these per se, but within the nine, there's probably two or three that anybody can use. So I could take a pot shot now and kind of guess what your, you know, you or your uh, your readership might benefit from. Sure. Um, which of those three would be most interesting? Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, or our spiritual connection? Well, I'm interested in all three, but let's start with the first one because that's who we're talking to, individuals listening on their headsets and thinking about themselves and what's happening in their lives. What would be an example of a tool in that category? I'll give you a couple of them. So uh, one of the things I've seen in my practice is that the toughest cases are the best looking kids, Hmm. even adult children, from the wealthiest families with the most successful parents. That's tough. I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. The best education. And part of the reason why is because their parents have these spectacular careers, these spectacular public profiles, and they really are flourishing and don't have a care in the world. As a result of their lack of anxiety on the part of the parents, or I should say a lack of tapping into and becoming vulnerable and actually, because we all have some anxiety, but often when people are doing really well and flourishing, we forget to actually think about our vulnerability, our struggles, because it's easy to just intoxicate ourselves with our success and materialism, um, yeah, with our materialism and sure. our success, one hundred percent. But but in but but what ha- ends up happening is a lack of a lack of self awareness on the part of parents, how they're coming across to others, what's something they say, you know, even even just a lack of emotional uh, uh, awareness, and that gets passed down often to the next generation, where kids are struggling and. They haven't seen a model of how to actually deal with one's own emotions. So this is where anxiety can actually become a blessing, where if we tap into it, if we lean into it, if we allow ourselves to experience that normal human distress, we can actually become much more aware of our emotions, of our reactions, of our our needs, our limits. And, And just this basic mental inventory, instead of being intoxicated by the exteriors um, our success, uh, as, as you put it. You mentioned the V word, vulnerability. Uh, in my own life, I, I've always been successful in my career. I've had a great family life. And it wasn't until I hit 
the roadblock that we sometimes hit, or we should always hit, you know, the dark night of the soul, call it what you will, that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm a human being, very vulnerable. And one of the great blessings, I think, of dealing with anxiety in the way you're talking about is reaching out and realizing it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to seek out advice and seek out the the wisdom of others, whether they be professionals or just great friends. It's really moving hearing you speak about your own personal experience. And, um, you know, along those lines, let me ask you a question. Sure. When you hit that dark night of the soul, by the way, I love that. Um, <laughs> did your relationships improve with other people? Absolutely. Uh, it, you know, uh, uh, to be fair and honest, at the time it was rocky. There's no question about it. But but in the in the healing process, in the yes. discovery, self-discovery process, my life blossomed. I have a radio – in radio we have um, uh, closing lines. You know, Groucho used to say – uh, hello, I must be going, but that's not my line. My line is be well so you can do good. And I adopted that line right after I sort of came back in the early 2000s and felt myself again, uh, a real self again. Be well so you can do good. And I still use that uh, on all my tags, even on the podcast, because I it changed my whole outlook on life, on judgment, on empathy and understanding people. Great. And that's, that's the second skill, is using our anxiety to actually connect with other people. Uh, other people don't like it when you're a know-it-all, when you've got everything done, when you're perfect and you don't need them. Yeah. Uh, if you can show vulnerability and say, hey, I'm really struggling right now, that allows other people to drop their guard, to actually connect with you, and to have a meaningful interaction. You know, we have such a lonely society. We don't live alone. We're not lonesome, but we are lonely because of this lack of promotion of our vulnerability. I'm, you know, I'm the first to admit I need probably a hundred people on a weekly basis in order (laughs) to get things done, in order to function uh, emotionally, spiritually in every way. And that's part of what makes me human is that I can't do it all myself. I don't want to do it all myself. That's what creates connections, but you have to lean into that discomfort of like, oh my God, Without these people, I'm really toast. And on a societal basis, cultural basis, uh, doctor, we have now experienced over the last 20 years the the rise of the machine, the rise of the cell phone, the rise yes. of the social media platform, which is so damaging to the kids and, and the younger generation particularly. And I know you talk about this in the early chapters. We are facing, uh, as the Surgeon General said, a crisis of loneliness, and it's a it's a medical crisis, and it goes so far beyond when you're dealing with young people, unfortunately. Yeah. When you're having a social interaction over Zoom, like we are now, or over uh, another electronic medium, if things get uncomfortable, yeah, click. <laughs> Mute. Kill your, kill your camera or at least Sorry, click up. Sorry, my well, camera's not working. Interference. Uh, Sorry, couldn't, couldn't help it. You, you've given and, us a lot to, to chew on, and the book is wonderful. I'll, I'll certainly plug it. But I wanted to know how this work is now being accepted and thought in, in academic and professional circles. What's the reaction of people in your world, in your professional okay, this world? Okay, it's a great question, and not too many people have asked me, so I'm glad to riff on it. Okay. Um, I was nervous writing this book, and I thought, for two reasons. Firstly, you know, being in the Harvard Medical School system, you know, uh, typically, it's or historically, I should say, it's been valued to have academic prowess, you know, writing for peer review, um, which, of course, I'm still doing, but I have to do it a lot less because here I am on podcasts, and I'm you know, trying to do television interviews and, and I'm writing for HarperCollins now, which is, you know, not a peer review outlet. It's actually in a different area of my CV entirely. It's like under communal service, right? It's like hmm. historically denigrated even. Hmm. However, my department has been 
such a blessing about this because it's recognized in psychiatry that we need to have forward-facing mental health education mm. for the world because we cannot, professionals and the institutions cannot handle the deluge of emotional distress. And the only way that we're going to be able to climb out of it is by having forward-facing academics who are you know, going to be writing for the public beyond the ivory tower, so to speak. And uh, that's been really great. And I'm very blessed to have a supportive department. With regards to the specific ideas, I've had a lot of support for it. I was also a little nervous about that too. You know, it's a little anti-medical anti in some ways, my approach. On the other hand, it's highlighting that people need holistic care. Yes, pharmacology, by the way, is a part of treatment, and I'm not against pharmacology, and I do want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think pharmacology should be used to eliminate our anxiety because that's a false promise, and it leads to greater distress. Right. It can be used to reduce our anxiety so that way we can tolerate it more, and that is fine. That's responsible pharmacological practice. But along those lines, people need better relationships, we need psychosocial tools to know what to do and what not to do, to turn off our phones at a certain time, to be able to manage things, not just using pills, not just using um, neurotherapeutic, you know, biological, biological psychiatry approaches. And that actually is getting even more uh, support from my colleagues and, and my friends in the academy. So I've been very pleasantly surprised, although I was nervous. <laughs> the old uh, axiom that we know may be about 5 to 10% of the brain and how it works. I don't even know if that's a true percentage factor, but as we... Probably a lot less. Than probably that. a lot less. It's the most intricate uh, and, and amazing organ uh, on the planet, the fact that the human brain does what it does. But we do understand, as you started out talking about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, we do understand that we're wired or built by, I think, our creator to handle a lot. And I think resilience is something that I'm learning about and my listeners, I'm sure, are learning about. It's more important than ever to think about yourself as a resilient being, somebody who can bounce back and take a punch to say yeah, it. Yeah, that's another aspect. You know, in the academy and in the professional psychology and psychiatry, we only look at the negative depression, anxiety, substance abuse, psychosis, mm -hmm. you know, all these negative diseases, if you will, um, as opposed to what promotes thriving, what promotes flourishing, what promotes connection, what promotes spiritual growth. Um, and coming at this from a positive psychology lens, which is grounded in evidence-based psychotherapy, is something that you know also has been uh, received well. We, we, we barely skimmed the surface, but I think we covered a, an overview that will give people food for thought, and they'll get hungry for much more of this. And the book is called Thriving with Anxiety. That's right, Thriving with Anxiety, not trying to escape it and not trying to cover it and, and numb it. Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You by David H. Rosmarin, Ph.D., and a very learned and fine example of what can be done when thinking people put their minds to it and their hearts to it. Thank you so much. It's been a great honor and a pleasure to meet you, sir. My honor. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. David H. Rosmarin, the author of Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. Do check that out and also take a look at his website www.dhrossmarin.com. That's D-H-R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N.com. Find out more about this particular podcast. You can go to my website, jordanrich.com. We are thrilled to be in over 100 countries in every state in the union with thousands of downloads every single week. And as I say always in closing, it's important to be well so you can do good. Take care.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.